Isaiah 9, uh, verses 6 and 7. Um, as we have just heard powerfully sung to us, these are the verses we will look at as we think about peace and Christmas today. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Oh God, I pray that we would uh, celebrate your coming to us, Emmanuel, who is with us. God, we would celebrate the fact that you in this mind-blowing way took on flesh to live and die for us to be raised for us and to rule over us in goodness and mercy god our hearts would be just overwhelmed with this reality this truth that god became a man we needed a king who had no sin and who was all-powerful We needed you to be our king, and you have come. Oh God, would we worship even as we hear your word preached. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Granddaddy just hit granny. Call 911. Now, that's not an episode of Cops that I was watching That actually happened at one of my Christmas, family Christmas get-togethers. My grandparents, they were the classic elderly couple who were always kind of going back and forth with one another, bickering about how the other one drove and what the other one was wearing. And on this particular evening, as we had gathered for a Christmas get-together with family, my granddad had continually called my cousin's new boyfriend by her ex-husband's name. And all night, my grandmother was frustrated and irritated. Would you stop that? It's so embarrassing. Nudging him on the shoulder. And then finally, she just said, I got to go. It's time for us to leave. And so, relative walked them out to the car. And almost seconds later, she turns around and comes back in the door, screaming, Granddaddy just hit granny, call 911. Now, I see on your faces what you're thinking. And it was the same thing we were all thinking as we sat there. We thought he had had enough of her. And he was tired of her harping on him. And they were just fighting. And he he just let her have it. That's what went through our mind. Senior adult domestic violence that was out in the driveway. And so we all rushed out and we realized that he had gotten in the car and didn't know she was out there and had bumped her in the car with the car. And I'll never forget 
Anna still didn't realize what was going on. She was young at the time, my daughter. And I remember her putting her hands on her head and going, Oh no, he tried to run over her with the car. And, and our minds are still in that world. And at the end of the day, we just realized, and we should have never assumed those things about my grandparents because that would never happen. But, but have you ever just been in that moment where you're trying to process things and that is reality to you and then you feel horrible about it? But we realized they were just in the dark and didn't know each other was outside. And that's what happened. And it was a little overkill about the situation, just to be honest with you. My family didn't level up. When it comes to the standard redneck Christmas, that's not what had happened there. But there are episodes like that for some of us that are thankful for the COVID restrictions right now. Because you're thinking, I don't have to go to that family get-together. Now, you don't really care about social distancing or anything. It's just a great excuse for you this year to drop the gifts off on the porch and go back home. Because most of our family get-togethers are not the Hallmark specials. And and most of them don't even provide the sort of entertainment that we want from the Griswolds. That doesn't even exist. We usually leave full of angst. Somebody said something, somebody wasn't there. They didn't like my green beans and I do it that way every year and they always, nobody takes them. Everybody took everybody else's food and we go away frustrated and irritated. Christmas rarely delivers the sort of peace that we long for. And we usually expect so much more from this time of the year than it provides. And I would dare say in a year like this, you're expecting more from Christmas than it will provide for you. You are thinking, if we can just get to Christmas, everything will be all right. And it's probably going to leave you empty again if you're putting your hope in Christmas itself the way we celebrate it. 7042 BC was much like 2020. There was confusion, there was chaos, there was governmental disorder. God's people were guilty of idolatry. And God had told his people Israel, I'm going to wipe you out. And he didn't mince words about it. He said, you are like this beautiful vineyard. And I'm going to take your enemies and I'm going to raise you to the ground until there is nothing left. And Israel was then divided into two different kingdoms. You had Samaria and then you had Judah. And these two kingdoms were divided against one another. And eventually the the Assyrians took over Samaria and they were about to invade Judah. And that's when God raised up a prophet named Isaiah. And he called Isaiah. He said, I want you to go and continue to warn these people that they are going to be wiped out. They're going to be judged. They're going to be punished. Their worship is an abomination. At one point, God would say through Isaiah, I would rather you kill a man than come in here and offer me sacrifices because it's about the same. He was tired of his people. He was going to wipe them out. But he sends Isaiah to warn them. And mixed in Isaiah's warning of punishment, there's also hope. Isaiah brings hope to a people who in chapter 8 we see are walking in darkness. And this hope that Isaiah brings is often 
centered around the idea of peace. There's no peace in the land right now. There's no stability in the land. They're worshiping false gods. They're insecure. Their enemies are going to wipe them out. There is no security. But in the same way, I will wipe them out and raise them to the ground. My vineyard will be totally destroyed. I will raise up a root that will grow into a king and a kingdom that will provide for all of my people's needs. It is a king they've never seen before. And chapter 9 begins with this description of this light that will come into the dark world that Israel is living in. And it was so interesting this week as I was looking at this. This light will come from Galilee of the nations. Here Isaiah actually refers to the area of ministry that we've been talking about in the Gospel of Mark. This area of ministry where Jesus is taking these mission trips around the Sea of Galilee and he's going into these Gentile towns. Isaiah says, from that place, Capernaum, there will be a light for the nations. And notice what this light will look like, verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Here he speaks of hope in a child. Now, King Uzziah that Isaiah served, he became king when he was 16. And so many may think about him at that point. During his ministry, Isaiah had a child. And some think that he, there was hope that would come from Isaiah's child itself. But as we begin to work this out, Isaiah's talking about another kid. Another son or king who is given. Who, who did not exist during this time. In Isaiah chapter 7 Isaiah says there will be one born of woman, born of a, about tyrants and kings. Oh, we need a son. We need a child to fix this. Now, we know the whole story. And so when we read that verse, we immediately think about Bethlehem. And Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us that this child was born to a peasant girl who wasn't just a young girl. She was actually a virgin named Mary. And God provides this child who will become a king, who will save his people from their sins. This child is the sovereign, sinless king that we need. Now, at Christmas, it's so important for us to reflect on Deep theological truth of the virgin birth. It's so important. That's what we should give our minds and hearts over to this Christmas. Because the virgin birth, it, we, we often think about it. It's just a detail of the Christ, Christmas story that kind of makes us go, wow. It's, it's kind of like the force in Star Wars. It's this mysterious thing and we go, ooh, that's really neat. God added that detail of virgin who gave birth to a child. Wow. We even think about that when we think about it as a sign that this is the one. Okay, this doesn't happen any other time in human history. And now a virgin has a child. That's the one. But it's even more than that. It's essential. God had to do it this way to save us from sin and death and our enemies. It had to happen this way. Mary had to be a virgin. You see, from Adam and Eve, people come into the world through the same biological process. 
And they also, since Genesis chapter 3, inherit the same sin nature. And then all of a sudden, in the womb of Mary, God intercepts that process. And it is not the same biological process because His Holy Spirit conceives this child. And this child begins to take on the same biological features except for one thing. He doesn't have a sin nature. Because it was God who did this miraculous thing. And it had to be this way. This child became a man like all other men except no sin nature because God had to do it. Now that miracle is necessary to save you from your sins. It had to happen that way. It's not just an extra. It's not just a detail in the story. It is essential. This child was born sinless inside and out. Because this child was God that was taking on flesh in her womb. And he was righteous inside and out. Which means he lived a perfect life and never sinned. Which is, it means he's the only one who could die for your sin. The virgin birth leads us to the cross where our sins are paid for in full. And it's the only way that could happen. The virgin birth means that a sovereign God took on flesh in the womb of Mary to defeat our worst enemies, sin and death. The eternal Son of God, this amazing reality, was developing as a child, an embryo, a fetus, sucking his thumb in the womb of Mary. And that same flesh would be nailed to a cross as a man. And that same flesh would walk out of a tomb three days later as a ruling king. It had to be that way. A sinless, sovereign God to die for our sins. It's the only way we could be rescued. And so this child is no ordinary child. And that's why the text continues. And the government shall be on his shoulder. And so we're thinking child, we're thinking son. And then God is going to this chaos, confusion over kingdoms and rule. God's going to place all of that on this child's shoulder. He will be sovereign ruler over God's government. The weight of all things will be placed upon him. There will be no election. There will be no recount. There can be no fraud. This child will be God's king. That's the tweet, period. That's it. He will rule. End of the story. But notice, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The word name here, it means fame means what he is known for. And then Isaiah begins to list all of these. They almost feel like nicknames. And rulers used to do that around their throne. They, they would put up banners that were sort of nicknames that, that were given to them that, that sort of characterized their rule or who they thought they were. When, when you hear that list, think about a boxer coming to the ring. It, that, that's kind of the way these names were Designed to make us feel Iron Mike, Kid Dynamite, the greatest, the Louisville Lip, the Italian Stallion. That's the way you would have thought about these names that were listed, except these names are like no other. And you would never give these sort of nicknames to a, to a man, to an earthly king. 
They are claims of divinity. And notice the first one, wonderful counselor. Now, that doesn't mean he's just a super good counselor and he gives great advice. No, that means supernatural wisdom, supernatural revelation. The counsel he gives is directly from God because he is God in flesh. He gives not advice. It's not advice, not pep talks. It is divine revelation in his flesh. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Is that God's supernatural, awe-inspiring, divine wisdom took on fingernails and lived among us. And if you wanted to go to God today and you say, God, what sort of advice would you give me? What sort of tips would you give me right now? He would say, Jesus. That's the will of God for your life. You realize that, right? We worry about decisions. We worry about what would God have me do. God would say to you, here's the will for your life. Follow Jesus. He's all the counsel you need. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Believe in His cross. Believe in His righteousness. Believe in His resurrection. Give yourself over to follow Him. We live in a time this year, fake news, all these experts giving us information. Everything changes daily. There's conspiracy after conspiracy. God, what would you have me to believe is true? Wonderful counselor in flesh. Look to Him first and foremost. Notice the next title, Mighty God. Now, the term here refers to heroic warrior. He is a warrior. He is a fighter. It is a military term that is given over to God. And it's a military term we first see after the Exodus. After God parts the Red Sea, His people are on the other side of the Red Sea and they begin to sing to Him and they begin to declare, Our God is a warrior. Our God is a fighter. God has delivered us from our enemies. And here... The title is a warrior God, a mighty God. We know from scripture that kings were to take on this warrior image for the people of God. We saw that in the little shepherd boy, David, who kills Goliath. Shepherds were heroes who killed the enemies. But this reality of warrior and king becomes one in Jesus The reality of God as a warrior culminates in the warrior king in the manger. When we look in the manger, that's what we see is God's might. Do you understand how ironic that is? That God displays his strength in the form of what we see here, a child, a son. Think about that. Think about how mind-blowing that is. God, how are you going to tell us that you are mighty? How are you going to tell us that you are strong where there is a child that is crying in a barn and that child has to be nursed and that child has to have its diaper changed and that child has to grow into a man and God is displaying his might and his strength in this weakness 
That He would set aside His strength. That He would set aside His might for us. And ultimately, He displays His strength in dying. Think about that. Just think about that. God is so strong and so mighty and so powerful that He can display His strength in dying, in losing. That's where His strength is displayed the most. When He does what no one else can do, He can die for our sins. He can be raised from the dead because He's perfect, because He's righteous, because He's sovereign. Think about that mind-blowing truth. Mighty God. Because the reality is, you have been faced this year with all kinds of things that have brought you low and have brought you weak. And yet, Christmas, you look into a very weak scene. Two poor parents wrapping a little baby in a feed trough. And God says, mighty God, look at him, trust him, believe in him, follow him. He's the only one who can fix it. Notice the next title, Everlasting God. Now, it's really important to divide both of these terms up. First of all, everlasting means he had no beginning. He has no end. He stands outside of time and space. He is what Revelation describes as the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning. He is the end. Everything comes from Him. That's the one who took on flesh. But this term Father here, it trips some people up. It actually just refers to the type of care this King will give to His people. This King will care for His people as a Father. He will protect them. He will provide for them like no one else. And we know Jesus, who is eternal, who has no beginning, has no end. He confines himself to flesh to care for us by connecting us to his father. That is the fatherly care that we get from Jesus is that he lives a perfect life that's credited to us. And our identity is found in Him. It is as if we live that life and we never sin. He dies in our place. He, he promises us this eternal kingdom that is His kingdom. He cares for us as a Father by giving us the Father's kingdom. And so we are loved as the Son by the Father. Isn't that mind-blowing that Jesus' fatherly care as our King is giving us a kingdom that the Father has given Him? We've learned this year that we have very little control when it comes to taking care of ourselves. There are things that float in the air that we can't control that can devastate lives, devastate the world. Not just health, economies, all kinds of things. And there are people making decisions that we have no control over and we would say, they don't take care of me, they don't provide for me. Well, at Christmas, remember the everlasting fatherly love that has been displayed for you in Jesus Christ. That began in Bethlehem. When this child was born, notice the last title given to Jesus, Prince of Peace. It means ruler of peace, ruler of shalom. The word peace here, it actually means tranquility, but it's not some psychological tranquility. It's actually tangible, outward tranquility or peace because it means all wars will cease. 
This is the prince or ruler who when he comes, he will put an end to all hostility. He will put an end to all chaos. He will put an end to all confusion. He will provide safety from our enemies. He is the prince of peace. Now think about this as we think about all of these other titles. Peace here seems to be a very passive benefit. We often think about peace as this passive thing. It, it, it's someone who just shows up and says, would y'all be quiet? Would you stop it? And, and we just want peace. Actually, the way to peace is not quiet. And the way to peace is not passive. The way to peace is achieved through justice, which is what is described in verse 7 here. Notice he says the increase. This is where he begins to talk about what the prince of peace will do. The increase of his government, meaning the expanse of his government. And of peace, there will be no end. And so the rule of the prince of peace... it. It will expand across the globe and it will never end. This is what Habakkuk talks about when he says the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And it will be total peace. Why? Because he will have achieved total justice and everything will be under his rule. Notice and on the throne of David and over his enemies. Now. We remember the promise that is given to David that through one of his sons there will be an everlasting covenant and he will rule forever. And here we see it is this child and we know it is Jesus who will rule from the throne of David over the world. He will rule over the world and over his kingdom, over God's power, over God's government. Notice to establish this kingdom, to root it in the earth. There's a day coming where the rule of God will be implanted in this world and it will encompass the globe. It will know no end. We won't get to a point in heaven where we would say, okay, we're entering new territory. This is no longer Jesus' territory. We better be, we better be careful. No, it won't, that's not what's going to happen. He'll rule the globe, beginning in Jerusalem from David's throne. But notice, and he will uphold it in justice. And with righteousness. Now these words mean rightness. What is right? The opposite of wrong. He will make all things right. Because he is right inside and out. And this will happen from this time forth forevermore. If we look at the rule of David in 2 Samuel. We see one of the characteristics of David's rule was he conquered the Philistines. He conquered all of God's enemies and he established peace and prosperity for his people because he defeated their enemies. But Isaiah in chapter 11, he talks about another rule where even the Assyrians and the Egyptians, these well-known enemies of God, of God's people, they will know peace too. The nations will know peace through this king. But notice what he says here. How will this be done? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Now the word zeal is, it is a fascinating word. Because it is the mixture of anger and love. It's a fascinating word. That, that where God mixes both his anger and his love to do something for his people. It is actually, the best way I know to describe it is it's anger that acts in love. 
God is angry at sin. He is angry at injustice. And so he wipes out sin and he wipes out injustice. Why? Because he loves us. And notice he says the Lord of hosts will do it. This refers to the army of heaven's chief commander, the one who rules over the angels. There is no military agent who has more credentials than this one. He is the Lord of hosts. He has all power at his disposal. And we know this is Jesus. Now think about that. As you think about how will peace be accomplished, he will do it through justice with infinite zeal, the greatest power ever known to complete the greatest justice and peace ever known. He is passionately committed to making all things right in the world. God created this world for His glory. Sin invades the world and devastates His glory in the world. He is zealous to make it right again. And He will do so if it takes all of heaven's army. God will punish, defeat, destroy sin and death. And we know that He did that at Christmas. He came and took on flesh because He's zealous. The Lord of hosts took on flesh. Now, this promise of peace is glorious and scary at the same time. It's glorious because all sin will be punished. One of the things that you've got to understand about God is no sin will ever go unpunished. If God doesn't at some point punish every sin, He is no longer holy. He is a liar. If he allows any sin to go unpunished in the world in which he created. And because sin deserves infinite punishment, because it is against an infinite holy God. Think about this. If God doesn't punish sin infinitely, he is guilty of infinite sin. In summary, all sin must be punished. Now, when we think about sin being punished, we often think about other people. When I began to talk about injustice, when I began to talk about unrighteousness, unholiness, when I began to talk about the enemies of God, there are probably certain people that came to your mind that were not the person you brushed their teeth this morning when you looked in the mirror. Probably somebody out there, your Facebook enemy, your political enemy, criminals, the bad people, even generic. Well, they will be punished. Revelation says that when, when Jesus comes back with a sword on a white horse, he will destroy his enemies so bad the birds of the air will begin to feast on their flesh and the earth will be like an ocean of blood. So everyone who opposes Jesus will be punished. But if he is zealous to punish all sin, that means he must punish your sin. When you think about God's zealous justice, do you think about yourself? Or do you think about other people? Here's the reality. God will not punish the sins of his enemies and leave your sin unpunished. He won't do it. He's not going to look past your sin just because you're special. Just because you attended church. Just because you labeled yourself with the good guys. No, your sin has to be punished. And that's what Christmas peace is all about. The zealous anger that God has toward sin, toward your sin, was unleashed 
on the cross as the son, this child that was given, endured the wrath of God for your sin. The zealous love that God has, this zeal that we're talking about here, this anger and love was was displayed most of all on the cross. God loved you by pouring out His wrath on His Son. That's how committed God is to justice. He will not let your sin go unpunished. And He is so committed to it, He sends His Son, this child, to die for your sin. Isn't that isn't that mind-blowing? I know I've said that a lot today. That's what Christmas, that's my word at Christmas, mind-blowing. But the psalmist says that on the cross, mercy and justice kissed. They came together in one place. And on the cross, your sin received justice. And in that very moment, as Jesus is squalling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he is enduring the wrath of God, as justice is being poured out upon your sin, in that very moment, you're receiving mercy. The Father will not look past your sin. You've got to understand that. There will be justice for your sin. And the glory of Christmas is, it will either be at the cross. At the cross, which is glorious. But the scary part of Christmas is that baby who is sucking his thumb in a barn. One day that hand will hold a sword. That's scary. If you know your sin. But that flesh and blood was nailed to a cross for us. And silent night became an agonizing symphony of suffering for you at Golgotha. That's what Christmas is all about. And until you embrace the cross, you will not know peace. You won't know peace. We're searching for peace. It either happens in the cross or in the sword of Jesus. You take your pick. But if you come to this Christmas and you're trying to find peace anywhere else but in the cross, you will never find it. You see, what I'm learning, and as I interact with people, here's what I'm beginning to realize about 2020. Some of you are so deceived into thinking that you're going to flip that calendar at the end of this year and all this is going to go away. That's witchcraft. Because it ain't going to happen. It's going to be 2021. And you're still going to be a sinner. And I'm still going to be a sinner. And we're still going to live in a fallen world. And there's no little generic group text that's going to come on Christmas Day that's going to make you feel better. Posting that beautiful family picture on your cover on Facebook around the tree ain't going to make you feel better. Because your greatest fight is a fight with God. And until you embrace the hostility, until you embrace the war, and I'm not talking about a family get-together. I'm talking about coming to the cross and saying this is the Christmas in which by faith I was crucified. 